I'd like to take a minute of your time to let you know what you can do to help Recovery Radio continue its mission as a premier provider of free ongoing support to recovering people worldwide. Recently, our expenses have skyrocketed. The increase is powered by our increasing bandwidth and storage needs caused by the growing popularity of our programs. This is actually a good problem to have, as it shows that we are filling a need as we continue our mission to serve the recovery community. However, even good problems are problems that need resolutions, and this is where you come in. Recovery Radio has started a fundraiser to help defray our additional costs. Please surf on over to recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. Give whatever amount you can, and rest assured your donation will be used to keep Recovery Radio on air and on mission. Please become part of the solution and help us support the recovery community. Hi, my name is Tina, and I'm an alcoholic. I live in Austin, Texas, and... uh, my home group is the Rule 62 group, and we meet on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. So if you're ever in Austin, we'd love for you to uh, join us. It is a big book study. Willard says, bring your own big book. And, again, it starts at 7 o'clock, but if you arrive at 7, you're late. So if you want a good seat, try to get there a little early. We'd love to see you. <clears throat> I, want to, uh, I want to thank the committee. Uh, my host, Dory, uh, when I arrived yesterday, I, uh, I wasn't really in a, in a good space, and I had this idea of the way it was going to look. I was kind of going to sneak into the hotel and get up to my room and come down and, and talk to you guys when I felt ready. <laughs> and it didn't work that way. I walked in, and they were greeting me, and I wasn't in a really good space. As a matter of fact, I... Uh, yesterday before leaving Austin, <clears throat> I had considered uh, calling and canceling because I'm experiencing a lot of pain and, and going through something right now. But uh, but I heard a speaker one time say something, and I try to live by that. He said, there's only one good reason to cancel a commitment, and that is that you died on the way. <laughs> so I'm here, and I'm grateful that I'm here. <laughs> I want to tell you that uh, I'm absolutely in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. I um, I have a life today that I, uh, first of all, I couldn't have imagined, I couldn't have dreamed up, and that I don't deserve based on my actions before getting here. And, you know, the book says that we share in a general way what we were like and what happened and what we are like now. It also says that we share with you from our own language and from our own point of view how we establish establish a relationship with God. As I want to tell you, before getting here, there was no power greater than me, except for the law enforcement. (laughs) So I know I have a, there's a God that absolutely loves me so much, but sometimes I still doubt my worth. And then I'll get a phone call from someone like Elizabeth. And they say, will you? And I feel so absolutely honored 
that I have a purpose and that I can show up and be of service and that God uses me in some way. So, um, in, in chapter 5, how it works. Do you believe that how it works really is how it works? You know, we read this so often and we, you know, we've memorized it and we don't think it is really how it works. But it's just rarely. I remember when I got here, um, oh, by the way, my sobriety date is August the 22nd of 2000. You know, and I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that, but I, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1984 and, and um, was in and out until 2000. But it says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And I thought that was me. You know, I, I thought that I was incapable of being honest with myself because there were times that I was done. I mean, there were so many times I meant it. I'd get out of prison and I really had a drive to live right. But eventually I'd pick up again. It says they are such unfortunates, they are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping a manner of, a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional, that means deep emotional problems and mental disorders. That's me. Many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. So I'm going to share with you uh, what I was like. And for, for so many uh, years, I thought, well, if you grew up in the environment I grew up in, you'd probably drink like I did. And, uh, and I thought that that probably was why I was alcoholic. But today I know that the environment that I was raised in has nothing to do with why I'm alcoholic. It has a lot to do with why I have grave emotional and mental disorders. <clears throat> so I, uh, I was born into a environment to where uh, the only thing that uh, was happening in my surroundings was sex, drugs, and violence, and every now and again some rock and roll. <laughs> But you never knew what was going to happen. And, um, and so what I was like, I remember being very young and I, uh, I was just terrified. I wanted to feel, I wanted to feel safe, but it never, you just never knew what was going to happen. And, and looking back at my, uh, my father died. He died of an overdose when I was three. And I only remember a couple of things about him, but, but they told me that my daddy loved me. You know, and so I grew up, you know, just thinking if my dad were here, I'd be okay. Because, see, as a child, I just wanted to feel loved. I wanted to feel comforted, and I wanted to feel safe. And I didn't feel any of that. Uh, my mother, um, from my professional opinion, suffers from the same disease that I do. But, I, you know, she may not think the same way. And what I do know is that um, my mother wasn't capable and still isn't capable of showing emotion in any form. She doesn't... 
She didn't really show anger. She didn't show love. She didn't show joy. She didn't show sadness. And um, and she always had a man, you know. And I I can't tell you. I don't I don't really know her story. I just know my perception of it. And um, and so there was after my father died, there was another man that came into the picture. And when I say sex, drugs, and violence. And a little rock and roll. I mean, that's, you know, nothing was really hidden from us. And and I don't know if I was more terrified to be inside the home or outside the home. See, see, if those kids knew what it was like inside our home, they really wouldn't talk to me. I mean, he had a gun in his hand and she had a sickle, sickle in her hand. And, you, and those weapons weren't for people outside of the home. And you just never knew what was going to happen. And and I have a younger brother, and for some reason, I don't know if he was affected the same way, but I wanted to be, like, in the middle of it. You know, I just had to know what was going on, and and I had to see everything. And um, and I probably saw a little too much. <clears throat> uh, I, I was at a very young age. You know, I, I was born in Houston, and, and around five years old, we uh, moved to uh, Ocean Beach, San Diego, and marijuana plants were just growing in our, our neighbor's backyard and everywhere. It was just the thing that everybody did. And uh, and I think my stepfather uh, gave it to me at a young age. And at the age of five, I, I knew how to, you know, uh, roll that and ingest it just like the adults did. And when I did that, I got a lot of positive attention. And so I did what I knew, and I kept doing that for as long as um, I could until I realized that I didn't like the effect produced by it. And I started going to school, I went to kindergarten, I went to first grade, and I remember taking that stuff into school with me. I, I had no drive for life when the other kids were outside playing uh, PE. I had no uh, excitement about that. I, uh, uh, school was not for me. I would try so very hard to retain a math problem or, or a word on how to spell it, and, and it just would not, it would not stick. I had a learning disability. I can't tell you why. Um, but I did. And so what I did is I found um, the only thing I knew how to do good, and that was ingest that stuff. And so when the other kids were playing PE, I found a big room, and I'd crawl up on this thing, and, and that's what I did. And in, second, in the second grade, they brought the dogs into the school because, you know, somebody had something, and that was me. And, and I started uh, experiencing fear around the police at a very young age. Um, And I continue to do that, and I want to tell you that I don't know how I made it to the um, to the seventh grade, but I did, and I think they felt sorry for me, and they passed me because I couldn't uh, pass a test. You know, when it came to taking tests, I I wasn't even a cheater; I just guessed, and I think I may have guessed on some that got me a high D, but you know, I I uh, I could not retain anything as much as I tried, so I I didn't fit in there, and. And again, and then I uh, suffered, you know, I, I just really wasn't okay with myself. I didn't feel like the other kids. I felt like, uh, not felt like I was. I was picked on a lot. And I just did not fit in. I did not fit in, and I was terrified. So I, I continue, continue to do the only thing that I knew, and that was ingest that stuff, because I think it numbed me out on some level. But at some point, I think, uh, you know, I'm... 13 years old, I found alcohol. And I'm sure I sipped on it before this age, but, but this is when I remember alcohol really doing for me, doing something for me. I remember going to the skating rink, and I remember a, a girl that reminded me of a, 
of like a pit bull or a bulldog. I mean, I was terrified of this girl. She was stalky and and um, and she gave me a hard time. And this particular night, I drank before I went to the skating rink. And that girl came up to me, and she did what she always did. And uh, that night, I reacted differently than I usually react. And that night, she ended up on the floor. And I felt pretty good. You know, I felt pretty good of myself. I see what, what that alcohol did for me is it, it gave me power. It took away that fear and I was able to stand up for myself. And my mind remembered what alcohol did for me. And I'm sure it was some years later before I started drinking again, but I sure didn't forget. It's like, man, that feeling was good. And, um, I remember uh, now I was uh, I was pretty young. I uh, I dropped out of school. Uh, I made it two weeks into the eighth grade, and I dropped out. I um, it just it just was not working for me. And at that time, um, there was nobody really at home. My mother would be gone for three or four days at a time, and there was no adult uh, at the home. And I you know I just I dropped out of school. At that time, I had moved uh, back to Houston. Uh, my grandmother uh, lived out towards Galveston, and and I went to my grandmother's, and uh, she didn't make me go back to school. We lived out in Bayou Vista. I don't know if you guys know where that is, but it's this little bitty island. And there were some people that lived across the island. I mean, I was only 15 years old, but they were young adults, and they were having parties over there. And that looked like something that I wanted to get into. And I remember there was a party, and, and I show up one night, and they had cases of Tangeray gin. Have you guys ever drank that stuff? It's nasty. It's nasty. But, but you know, see, I don't... It's so funny because I, uh, I remember saying so often I drink because I like the flavor of beer. No, I drink because I like the effect produced by. And that stuff was nasty, but I drank plenty of, uh, plenty of it. And I think something else was going around, and I probably took one of those too. But that night... I had an experience that I didn't really consciously choose to have, and a few weeks later I find out that I'm pregnant. And I'm going to tell you that that was my solution. When I found out that I was pregnant, I didn't plan it and sure had never thought about it, but that was my solution. See, today I know that I had this big empty hole, and really I thought if I were loved just right, then I would be okay. And when I found I was pregnant, there were people that tried to talk me out of having that baby. And I said, there is no way. I said, this baby, this baby is mine. And, and this baby is going to love me unconditionally. Do you hear that? Love me. That's a level of self-centeredness that I suffer from. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I went through that pregnancy. I ended up marrying his father uh, because they said I had to, his family. Uh, I didn't think I had the power to choose. All I know is that I wanted that baby. And... And I absolutely love being pregnant, and I had just turned 16 years old, and he was born a month later, and I had nat- natural childbirth. And I truly believe that was the first spiritual experience that I had. And he was beautiful, and I looked at that baby, and I told that baby uh, I was going to love him, I was going to take care of him, I was going to nurture him, and I was going to give him everything that my mother couldn't give me. And I meant it. Well, I did my wifely duty twice after that. So five months later, I was pregnant again. And I wasn't so excited. I didn't have that same feeling. I realized that taking care of a child is a lot of responsibility. But I went ahead and um, 
to move forward and, and gave birth to my daughter. I was 17 years old, and I, and she was born, and, and I felt the same exact way, and she was just perfect, and she was beautiful, and, and I fell in love with those babies, and, and I meant it. I really wanted to be a good mother. I mean, that was, that was my drive from that point on, and <clears throat> she was three months old, and I left the, left that marriage, and, and I was 17, and at that time, the legal drinking age was 18, and, and I was able to get into the clubs here in Houston without an ID, and and uh, and I felt powerful. Now I remember going out to the clubs, and my grandmother stepped into the picture, and she said, "Here, you know, she she was willing to take care of those children so that I could go out and enjoy my life." And I remember going. I wanted to go out and have a good time, but I remember I was terrified. I'd go into these clubs, and I'd really be on the sideline over here. I wanted to be able to do what you guys were doing, but I was so full of fear. And so I have to drink a little bit. You know, they, before my dad died, he was a pool shark. So in my mind, I wanted to be like my dad. Even to play pool, I had to have some alcohol in me. And see, so you put some alcohol on me and I'm going to shoot pool just like he did. But, but alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Because see, without alcohol, I felt like I was a dwarf. I felt like I was nothing. I felt like I was just about three foot tall and, and I was nobody and I didn't feel attractive. But you put alcohol on me and I grow a little bit taller. Just like my heels here, you know, I put them on and I get a little bit taller. And you put alcohol on me and I become a little bit prettier. And you put alcohol on me and I have a little bit more courage. Well, I didn't have any before that. But you put some alcohol on me and I have the courage to get on the dance floor and dance with you a little bit. And I drink a little bit more alcohol and I have the courage to be up on this table and dance for you. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing that the things that I could do on alcohol. And pick on me? Yeah, that wasn't happening. You put alcohol on me and you better watch out. But the reality is, is, is I, I suffered from grave emotional disorder, so alcohol was amazing. But towards the end of the night, it always turned on me. I mean, you put enough alcohol on somebody who has grave emotional problems, watch out. You don't know what you're going to get. You know, alcohol made me feel in control at 18 years old. I mean, the people around me did not want to ride with me, but I would not surrender my keys. And at 18 years old was the first time that I was arrested. I ran a red light at Richmond and Dunville or something like that here in Houston and hit a car and um, could have seriously hurt some people. I barely remember the experience. But I'm going to tell you that I was in Harris County Jail, and uh, and it's not a small jail. So you're standing in this hall, and I, I probably have the numbers wrong, but it seemed like there was about 50 of us. And we were standing there butt-ass naked with all of these officers looking, and, and I had no alcohol in me. And I was so humiliated. And I told myself, I am never going through this again. And I meant it. And the first time you're in, you know, and you, you get out of there pretty easy, you know, first time you're in, or maybe the second or third time. But, um, you know, I get out of there, and that, and... And I went through some sort of, you know, they send you for some sort of evaluation, and they said I had signs of alcoholism. But, you know, I remember going to an AA meeting at 18 years old, and it may have been, I don't remember where it was, but it may have been in Pasadena. I mean, and they appeared to be a glum lot. It was dull. I think these old-timers were back there playing cards, and, I mean, that, I was not attracted to what they had in any shape or form. 
that wasn't for me. And I go back to doing what I do. See, my alcoholic mind forgets that pain. It forgets that humiliation that I experience. It says from even a week or a month ago, I am mentally without a defense against that first drink. So I go back to drinking, and, you know, I like to drink and drive. I mean, it makes me drive really well. I didn't have a problem with it. Everybody else did. You know, and it, this this thing, I was thinking about it the other day, still at 17, 18 years old, I, I really didn't understand, and did I just attract the law or what? I, mean, I remember being at a party and somebody, some guy harassing me, and I call the police, and they show up, and I get arrested. <laughs> disorderly conduct, Pia, I mean, golly, and I, I just couldn't understand it. I mean, I'm not a bad person. So at, at 19 years old, somewhere here in Houston, you know, after a club venue and there's an after-hours party, I mean, hey, man, wherever the party is, I'm going, especially if it's all night long. And they're doing something. I've never heard of this stuff and what they're doing, and they're mixing some white stuff with some liquid, and they're ingesting and... I'm clueless, and I'm drinking because I like to drink, and they share it with me, and I'm like, okay, I don't get any um, any effect from it. And they want me to try it again, and I still didn't get an effect from it. They wanted me to try it again, and I got an effect from it. Then, oh, oh, I got to tell you guys, before that, before this point, because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I had no education. So I went to work in a door-to-door sales. There was a sales position. It was a newspaper subscription. And I went to work the first day, and I could not sell anything. I just had so much fear and lack of confidence. But but this second day, somebody offered me in and offered me a beer, which I graciously accepted. I mean, you know, and it's like, absolutely. And and I drink that beer, and I may have drank two. I really can't tell you. I don't remember what what I do know is that night I became top salesperson. And then the next day I drank a few before I went to work, and I became top salesperson of the night, top salesperson of the week, top salesperson of the year. And that's what alcohol did for me. It did amazing things for me. So at 19 years old, I get you know I'm at this party, and I you know I do it long enough to where I have an effect produced by and. Well, I liked it. I got to stay up longer. I get to party longer, drink more. And, you know, somewhere I learned that you can make some money in it. And, of course, I'm so good at sales. You know, I... <laughs> then I started selling it, and within six months I'm facing two delivery charges. And um, and they're telling me I'm going down for ten years. And I'll tell you, what do you think the only, the single thing that I think about when they tell me that? I, I can only think about my children. The loss of my children is all I could think about, and there is no way that I could be separated from those babies. See, the real me wants that, but and the real me loves those children and wants to be a good mother. But see, my actions look like I only love me. And I make a deal with these guys. They tell me if you do certain things, you'll be set free, and I make a deal. I'm willing to do anything. You know, you terrify me and threaten, threaten my, my separation from my children. I'm willing to do anything. And I meant it. And I got out and I got so far separated from them, I couldn't follow through with my deal to them. And I go back to doing what I do. And I pretty much uh, lived, uh, you know, undercover for the next seven years. Different aliases. I couldn't show up because there were warrants out for my arrest. You know, my picture was in that little green sheet or yellow sheet, whatever you guys have here. And 
And, um, you know, I was terrified. And the only thing that took away that fear was alcohol. That's the only thing that would treat my spiritual condition was alcohol. And and during those seven years, I got arrested a few times, but under different names. And it took them some time. Man, these days, they've gotten really good. You can't get away with it. Back, back in those days, man, you could get away with some stuff. I mean, I remember one time already being incarcerated, and my alias had a court date. And my friend showed up as me. And, you know, it was crazy. And she was a definitely a codependent enabler. She's in plain state right now behind her alcoholism. But, oh, my God, it was just insanity. It was just insane. And I, um, you know, eventually they figured out who I was. And the cycle just continued. And, and I know, all I know is that when I, you know, after those seven years passed and, and I, uh, I went down to TDC, and I can't even remember the dates and times and the first time that I was there. But first time that I was there, I, you know, I clearly knew that alcohol was a problem for me, and I really wanted some help. But I didn't understand the disease of alcoholism, and they offered a class. It was called Recovery Dynamics in Gatesville, and I took it. You know, they, they ask if you're powerless. Well, I mean, sure. Are you an alcoholic? Sure. You know how many times I work with somebody and they try to convince me they're alcoholic? Why? I now ask them why you think you're alcoholic. You know, because it wasn't until I understood the disease and really had to see if I suffer from this disease was I able to have a first step experience, that entire psychic change. So in that recovery dynamics class while I'm in Gatesville, they tell me to write a life story. Don't you know we're already so selfish and self-centered as it is to write a life story? We just like that because we can write all about ourselves <laughs> and the way that we see it. And, and boy, I got a lot of freedom out of that. You know, I get, <laughs> I get out. I, you know, I think some, somewhere somebody suggested or I was supposed to. I'm on, on parole and I'm supposed to go to some AA meetings. But I remember going into an AA meeting and and see what I don't think that see I. My mind thinks once I'm separated from it that I now have the power to choose. I'm like, well, I'm not drinking, and if I drink and it gets out of control, then I'll know where to go. <laughs> I mean, I was not convinced. And, and it took a whole, whole lot of uh, more consequences and a whole lot of pain before I was convinced. In the doctor's opinion... It says men and women drink essentially because we like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems to be the only normal one. Without it, um, they are restless, I'm restless, irritable and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks we see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through a well-known stage of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution to not drink again. And this is repeated over and over. And unless a person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for his recovery. You know, I'm I, behind the walls. I, you know, I just wish. I mean, it doesn't matter. We get here when we get here. But I didn't know anything about alcoholism. 
I knew that my alcoholism got me arrested. That's the only thing that I knew. And for some reason, even though I couldn't stand being locked up when those handcuffs went on, there was some sense of uh, relief because, see, I could not stop on my own. Eventually, the alcohol turned on me and it quit working. I mean, I, I forgot to tell you that, you know, as a very, uh, from very young, you know, I think I mentioned, you know, it was just kind of dull, kind of gray outside. I had suffered from depression all my life. And alcohol changed that. It made things a little bit brighter. And, and eventually it turned on me. It didn't work for my depression anymore. It um, didn't really take away my fear. And my alcoholic life seemed to be the only normal one. You know, it got to where I don't think ever... I have always drank alcoholically. I don't think I ever woke up the next morning and somebody told me what a great person I was last night or something kind that I did. I mean, I would always wake up the next morning with uh, hearing uh, the things that I damaged, the people that I hurt or that I peed on the floor in the closet. I mean, just crazy things. And I... Uh, and every day I would wake up with a whole lot of shame. Tons of shame and I um, and remorse. And I wouldn't want to hurt the people and I wouldn't want to damage the objects and the things that I did and, and I wouldn't want to make the messes that I made, but it would happen again. Where it says our alcoholic life seemed to be the only normal one. I never laid down to uh, go to sleep. I was either, you know, hugging that toilet seat, puking or you know, passed out somewhere. And many of mornings, I woke up in a bed full of wet. And with that mattress outside, trying to air it out and spray Lysol on it, my alcoholic life seemed to be the only normal one. You know, the, uh, the pain, the humiliation, and the embarrassment that I caused my children, I... Um, Truly, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean, I, I have a life today that, uh, that is so absolutely amazing, but based on the way that I lived for so long, I, I didn't deserve it. <clears throat> Given sufficient reason, I can't stop. So whether it be because I'm a, you know, I had been on probation or parole or both at the same time since I was 18 years old. And... Um, and I could never get off because, see, I could never successfully stay stopped. So fear of consequences couldn't get me to stop. I was living um, separately from my children and got to a point to where I didn't even want to show up for my kids to see me anymore. So the best thing that I could do was stay away. And my grandmother was taking care of my kids, and they were, she uh, really had lost control over them. And my son, um, he was 15 years old, and he got did some sort of joy riding. I don't know what he did, but got in a little bit of trouble, and eventually he was sent off to a foster care. And I think he liked to ingest some stuff that he really wasn't supposed to be doing and broke some rules and was about to get in some trouble, and he ran away from there. And I live in Austin, and I learned that he had ran away from that home, and he was living out in the drag. And as much as I don't want my kids to see me, I have to show up. That mother inside of me has to go look for my son. And... And I asked some people, and I described him, and they, they said, oh, yeah, he, uh, 
I was able to locate my son, and I'm trying to encourage Dylan to to go back with me and let me take him back to my grandmother's, and I didn't want him to live the life that I want. The next day was his birthday, his 16th birthday, and he said, okay, Mom, I'll do that, but not tonight. So I let him be, and what it, the way it looks for me is when I say I'm going to be somewhere at a certain time, when I start drinking, I, I can't follow through. I can't show up when I say I'm going to, and, and I don't know what's going to happen. But we agreed to meet the next day at noon on a certain street corner. And I don't know how I made it there at noon, but I did. But he wasn't there. Started asking some guys on the drag, have you seen him? They said, oh, yeah. He took off with a group of guys, these guys that like to hop trains. And that they were hopping a train and they were taken off to uh, Vegas or something. And only thing I could think about, I mean, I just went into this deep state. I couldn't control my emotions, my loss, my son, what's going to happen to him. And... And so I just drove around, you know, and I couldn't consume enough alcohol to take away the pain, to take away the pity that I was feeling. And I was driving around the railroad tracks just trying to locate him, to stop him from hopping the train. So many hours pass, and I get a phone call that my son had fallen under a train. They made it to Taylor, Texas, and that he had fallen under a train. And I want to tell you that I couldn't handle any information. They told me that he survived the accident. And I didn't go into gratitude. They told me he survived the accident but had, you know, a, you know, concussion, crushed lungs, his arm was amputated. And I thought about him for a split second, but then I thought about me. How am I going to handle this? See, because I didn't have the skills to handle it. I didn't have the emotional strength to handle anything. And I wanted to die. See, that's a level of selfishness and self-centeredness that I suffer from. I want to be there, but I don't know how to be there. And he was life-lighted back to Austin. And I go to the hospital and I look at my baby that is all mangled up and beat up and that really needs a mother. And I can't even really hug him because I feel so toxic. And I go into the bathroom in his room and I keep drinking because, see, I have to. And I run out. And I run out and I have to have some more. And I plan on being back in 45 minutes. And three days pass. <clears throat> and I lived that way for the next couple of years, and I really tried to uh, take my life, and for some reason I'm here. I didn't want to live anymore, and I, didn't, I couldn't consume enough alcohol, and all I know is it wasn't working anymore. It was not working anymore, and I couldn't live with it, and I couldn't live without it. And I made it into a treatment center. Um, oh, no, before that, I got two more felonies. Uh, two more felonies, and, you know, I didn't want to stop. But I, I want to say I got two more felonies, and one was enhanced to habitual, habitual felon. And, and I'm locked up for four months, and I didn't plan on drinking again. And now I know I'm looking at, you know, 10 to 99 and 25 to 99 years in prison. And I'm on paper. I don't qualify for anything else. I am still on paper. And I get out of there, and within the first 24 hours, I'm drinking again. You know, I get on an on a ankle monitor, and they wanted to hold me, you know, keep me close. They considered me very high risk. And I'm drinking again, and I, and I don't plan on it. And I'm having to report to someone every week. And I did that for 12 days straight. And I was going insane. I'm locked up in an apartment, and I can't, and I'm just at that place. I mean, I couldn't live with myself with it or without it. 
and I'd, I'd go into a treatment center and they uh, and I go into detox and they have me on some medications and I, I tell you that I wanted to stay on those medications. I didn't want to wake up. I wanted my life to be a bad dream. I could not deal with what I had created. And I go in and I and I'm committed to going into uh, this 30-day facility and and I really didn't want to be around any of them. Something happened in there. It happened in there because I couldn't really understand how I got to this place again. How, when I got out of safe pee and I was locked up for that last time for a year and a half, how I was done for good and for all, and I had no reservations. The book says that we must not have any reservations whatsoever. That all of those ideas must be smashed. That I'm ever going to be able to drink like a normal person. All, all of that was smashed. And I got out and I went to meetings. And I worked some steps, and I was willing to do whatever they told me to do. But what I know today is I was not convinced that I had the disease of alcoholism, that I had lost the power to choose even when it wasn't in my body, and that when I have to go in and go see the dentist, or I have to go have a surgery, and they give me some pain medication, that I'm in danger. So I was done for good and for all in 1994 and was willing to do whatever you guys told me. Stayed sober another year and worked up to the ninth step and started experiencing some of the promises. But I wasn't convinced of the, four, uh, the first step and I wasn't around people who told me uh, to read Bill's story or how imperative it is, it is to, to be carrying this message to others and to be seeking to help others. And I was diagnosed with cancer, and, and I very quickly was in having a 15-hour surgery, and I knew they were going to put me on pain medications. They already told me. And see, in my mind, I thought I had control. I said, I'm not going to allow myself to become addicted because I'm not a pill addict. And I'm not going to abuse them. And I never abused them. But I took that one pill a day, and that pill did something for me. It treated my untreated alcoholism. It gave me a sense of ease and comfort. See, my spiritual condition was all out of whack. And eventually a drink was put in front of me and I had no mental defense. And I was back out there for another few years and got another, you know, couple of felonies. So, you know, that's just how it goes. I mean, that... I promise you I'm not a bad person, you know. But I, I had some... <laughs> but on record, you know, I have aggravated assault... You know, many DWIs, PIs, disorderly conduct. I mean, it, it would take two or three of them to get me down. And I really don't know why. I don't understand. You know, I was just drinking to change the way that I felt. And it's so funny because there were many times I got arrested and in my mind I was convinced that I was going to prove that they were wrong. As a matter of fact, the uh, last time, I, in my mind, I was convinced that they were wrong and eventually those felonies would be dropped. But that never happened. <laughs> never. So it, in 2000, though, I had, what they, I, I had that entire psychic change. See, before, I knew I was done for good and for all, and I just knew I wasn't going to drink again. And what happened in 2000, it completely shifted. I am really clear that I am powerless over alcohol once it's in my body because I have this disease, the phenomenon of craving, that keeps me from being able to stop. 
You see, that's not the problem. I know once that happens, you know, the only thing that is separate me is the law enforcement. But what about when it's not in my body and I pick up again? So I have lost the power to choose. On page 24, it says the fact is that most alcoholics, for a reason yet obscure, have lost the power and choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. I am unable at certain times, not all times, but at certain times to bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the pain, the humiliation, and the suffering from even a week or a month ago. I am without defense against that first drink, mentally. And I became clear that all my life I've suffered from depression, all my life I've suffered from fear, you know, and, and all of these spiritual things. And if I didn't have a true solution to me, I will drink again. And that was my entire psychic change. And I had hope for the first time in my life. It got a little bit brighter. It did. When I had some hope, it's like it felt like I put alcohol in me. What alcohol used to do for me, it made things just a little brighter. And I still had a little bit of doubt in the back of my mind. I didn't know that it would work for me, you know, because I had failed everything, every test pretty much that I had taken. You know, there was only one class that I uh, made an A in, and that was art. But, you know, I, this is some, you know, you work these steps, study this book. I had no studying skills. That was very intimidating to me. I couldn't pronounce words, or I didn't know what the words, I mean, a lot of big words like anonymity. You know, the uh, autonomous, the malady. I mean, all of these words, it's like, whoa, I, this is way out of my league, you know. You need to put me back and, you know, come down and, and change the language. But I, um, and so at, at the beginning it was a little intimidating, but I tried, I tried, I tried, and I was, I was desperate that I was going to get it. And so when I started sitting in the front row. I got out and got involved with a group, and it was only about eight or ten women. I had to get a small group. I had so much fear of people. And I did not only what my sponsor told me to do, but I did what your sponsor told you to do. And whoever was up at this podium and speaking and whatever they said they did that worked for them, I did that. See, I didn't know what my future held, but I just knew that if, if I did what you guys did, that I'd be able to stay sober and that if I had to be locked up, that God was going to use me there. And I remember hearing people talk about hearing God. And I knew they were tripping on something if you're hearing God. <laughs> But there were some people in Austin that were practicing and teaching this two-way prayer. And, you know, and the things that I learned in treatment, I was really just trying to practice this stuff, you know, practice this morning meditation. And Anyway, this one day I heard God. And it was through my own thoughts, but it's not my own type of thinking. And, and God told me, Tina, you're not who you think you are. And you're not what others think you are. And you're a perfect child of God, just broken. And I believed it. And I also heard within the first couple of moments that if you focus on what the real problem is and change your actions, that you will never spend another day in jail. And I believed it. And so I started changing my actions the best I could. I started just trying to help people, you know, going to halfway houses and, and help in whatever way I could. And it was all little. This has been a gradual process, you know, of, of thinking of me less. You know, that again, you know, and that, that day of that inspiration was that pro my problem was me. That uh, my actions didn't show the people that I loved. That I loved them. My actions showed that I loved me only. And I started applying this to my life. And, 
and I was involved with a group that didn't ask me what I wanted to do. They just kind of told me what I was going to do, and they got me on board to going back into the treatment center that I came from and start carrying the message. I wasn't interested in giving up an hour and a half or two hours of my time for traveling and spending an hour with those people that I didn't know. But I did it. And something happened. I'd walk out of there, and, it, and I would have this feeling to where it didn't matter if I had a job or had a car or had a home, that that feeling in that moment was the most important thing. And so I kept doing it because of that feeling. So I kept doing it for my own selfishness, for the, the effect produced by. And what happened is God started to change me to where I actually started to care about those women's lives. And that was amazing because I, uh, I didn't care about anyone else's life. And then I got to get on board and start carrying the message into the prisons. And that's amazing, to be able to walk into TDC or a safe P unit and, and give my... Uh, my TDC number, they know they're talking to someone who can relate and also, you know, give these people some hope. Because, see, they think it's a revolving door and that it's set up to fail when it's really not. When I change, everything changes. And I had 11, I had over 11 months sober and I was doing this deal on, you know, to the best of my ability and, um, and I go to, a week before I had to see the judge, my attorney says, he looks at me and says, Tina, I see something's changing in your life. He goes, but the DAs, the DAs, he said, you know, see, the DAs looked at me as a drug dealer. Well, that's because I was one. <laughs> they didn't look at me as an alcoholic, which is what I really am. They were, were willing to drop the enhancement, the 25 to 99, but it was going to be too... 210 flat. And I'm going to tell you that I had so much faith in that divine inspiration and through working the 12 steps, I had so much faith in a God that I patted my attorney on the back. I said, David, don't worry about it. God's in control. And he flipped. <laughs> He's never had a client say, okay, God. The day we're walking up to court the next week, he, he's across the street and he goes, just pray. Just pray. <laughs> okay. Okay. I want to tell you that I showed up to court and I didn't have family support. You know, the book says wife, no wife, job, no job. I'm, t I'm living proof. I had nothing. I was on the bus line. I was in a halfway house and I had no family support. And I, I was working at Goodwill for $7 an hour. <clears throat> but, but the people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous were there and they wrote letters in my behalf. You know, when I got here, I was broken. I didn't even think that I was worthy of, of your, your love and attention. But they loved me, they welcomed me, and they supported me, and they stood by me, and they showed up to that courtroom with me. And they wrote letters, and what Judge Lynch did, he waited for me to be the last person in the room, and he read over some of those letters, and he overrode the DA's decision, and he says, something's happening in this woman's life, and I'm not going to send her to jail. And I was granted two 10-year probations that I did not... Uh, qualify for based on all of my legal history and uh, he looked at me and says well from from what I see here is you know what the problem is and what the solution is so that means I should never see you in my courtroom again I felt like I was granted another chance at life that I truly did not deserve and I have not taken that day for granted and I lived those 10 years not one time in fear of getting in trouble all I did was live in the solution of Alcoholics Anonymous that you guys have ta taught me how to do. And I was able to discharge those 10-year probations in 2011. 
And I'm a free woman for the first time in my life. I mean, my entire adult life I've been on under the legal system, you know, up until a couple of years ago. You know, I can go to Jamaica. And, you know, I probably could vote now. I think they may let me vote. I'm not sure. But, you know, it's like I have a... Um, I am just so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous because it has given me a life. You guys have taught me. You guys have taught me how to dress. You've taught me how to speak. You've taught me how to sit. You teach me how to show up. You know, you. T I mean, you guys are my teachers. You have taught me how to be a friend. You have taught me how to be a mother. You know, my my kids, my son, you know, he was in prison about five or six years ago, and he asked for a big book. Well, I get excited, you know, and I'm going to go package that book up, and I send it to him, and I got, I got really excited. He got out, and he went into a sober house, and very quickly, I mean, he was going to some meetings very quickly. He said, I'm not like you guys. This isn't for me. And so I watched it. You know, I watched it in him progressively, um, you know, how it shows up. And he ended up getting a, um, his fourth DWI, which was his third felony, uh, a few years ago and called me and wanted me to bail him out and I said no I mean unless you're willing to go get some help I mean I just I uh, was not willing well he found a way to get himself out and I watched him and I stayed out of the way and before that I kept saying Dylan man if you do it if you come and uh, do what we do you can have what I have and he's like I don't want what you guys have remember that glum lot I didn't want what they had but he, he wasn't like us and he had this alcohol machine, and he tried to manage it for as long as he could. And one day he called me. And Well, I want to tell you, before that I realized that I, I was trying to impose him getting some help. And one day uh, he called me and said, Mom, I'm about to uh, take off and burn my fingerprints. You know, I'd rather, you know, be living in California or Colorado. And um, this was the life that he, he truly wanted. And... And at that moment, I stepped back and I realized that it, it, this is his journey. It's not my job. And if that's the life that he wants to live, that's his choice. And that my job as a mother, is, I may not like it, but just to let him know that I love him. And if he took off, to know that he could pick up that phone and call me if he needed me. And I stepped back and I didn't say any more to him other than I love him. And if that's what he wants to do, go ahead and do it. But I did do something else. So I had learned something about positive prayer through this book that I read. And I started changing my thoughts and my prayer about him. And I started claiming the power of God and his recovery and his love, his strong relationship for God and his love for uh, helping others. And I did that just for about two months. And I got a phone call one day. And he says, Mom, I'm willing to do anything to save my butt. But this is the thing. That was only with the law. See, it doesn't matter what brings you here. And I'm driving him up to this facility. And he really did have a lot of spiritual awakenings on LSD. So he he really had these ideas that he was going to go teach them something about God. And I just listened to him. And I, I didn't say anything. And I drove him up there and I let him go. And he got to have his own experience. Well, my son has now uh, 22 months sober. He's about to start carrying the message into the prisons, and he's had a spiritual experience. And, and we uh, and we showed up to court, and he had his mother there to support him. But we also had the people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that wrote letters in his behalf. And and what happened in five and a half months of his time and his life change had a, barely enough points to get him over, and he was granted. Ten years probation, five years no driving. 
but he has freedom. He has freedom today, and he may have some limitations, but he has freedom, and, and to get to watch it. And my son, that I couldn't show up for when he was laying in that hospital bed, looks at me and calls me his hero. I have a relationship with him, and he has a daughter we, we found out um, about a year ago, which is, uh, she's four years old, and she is my granddaughter. And, um, and, and she's disabled, and she has a handicap, but we get to spend time with her, and I get to show up and be a mother to him and a granddaughter to her, a grandmother to her. And, and my daughter, my daughter, I would like to say, you know, from my professional opinion, because, you know, I have a lot of ideas and I think I know what people need, but, you know, for a long time, I, uh, you know, my daughter, uh, I really believe could utilize this program or some psychiatric help. I'm not really sure, but she, she has deep emotional problems too. You know, how could she not? She comes from a family of alcoholism. And I was really scared because she's 29 years old and, um, and my grandmother, that just passed away really played a part in not allowing her to help her grow up. So she uh, mentally kind of operates like a 15-year-old. And about a year and a half ago, she called me. She had just started dating this boy, and she told me she was pregnant. And I was not very excited. See, all I could think about was me. She isn't going to be able to take care of get of that little baby, and it's going to be my responsibility. And the level of self-centeredness that I suffer from, my thoughts were, that she not have that baby, she give that baby up, either have an abortion or give it up for an, for an adoption. And that was in that moment. Uh, a little bit of time went by, and she said, Mom, aren't you excited? And I was like, whoa. And I had to change, and I had to incorporate some prayer and change. And uh, see, my first thought and the level of self-centeredness that I suffer from could really create some damage. I'm going to tell you, I was able to be there and watch that little boy be born He'll be 10 months next week, and he uh, is the absolute most joyful thing in my life right now, and it has opened up a channel of love in my heart that I can't even describe. And she is an absolute amazing mother to that baby and is more attentive to that baby than I could have ever imagined. Does she still need to do some things? Absolutely, but she is taking care of that baby, and they're, they actually are living with me right now. And but if it would have been my first thought, that child wouldn't even be here. How am I doing on time? You know, I um, I have a life today. I um, I would, you know, I, Alcoholics Anonymous. I would come into the rooms. I I remember I was working at Goodwill. I just want to say I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I didn't have an education, but I was willing to do anything. And and I left Goodwill and went to work for Home Depot and was planning on making a career there. And um, 9-11 went down while I was working there. Miracle with the, with the law enforcement happened. I didn't have to go to prison. And I was in the process of getting promoted. And they asked to do a credit and a criminal background check. And I signed the release form. I had nothing to fear. And they came back with my big, ugly past. And they saw that I lied on my hiring application. And that lie, I was instantly terminated. And uh, I should have just answered yes, but I really, I guess it was a time period. I didn't know there was a conviction in that time frame. But I should have just answered yes, and I answered no. <laughs> but anyway, I was, ter uh, I was uh, terminated from that job, and I didn't know what I was going to do, because after 9-11, you can't even go get a door-to-door -door sales position job without them doing a background check. But I, I come into the rooms, and I heard when one door closes, another one opens, and I just had to hold true to that. 
You know, I want to tell you that I've been a business owner for over a decade, and I wouldn't have been able to create that, and I'm a homeowner, and um, I'm self-supporting through my own contributions. And if it weren't for you guys, people in the rooms that have either given me little bits of words or telling me what I could do, I wouldn't have a life today. And so I just give uh, all of my gratitude to and uh, thanks to people in the rooms. I mean, you guys still show me how to live. And I think my time is up, so I'm going to read one thing. I want to share something about my mother, my uh, relationships. My mother, um, through, through going through the work within the first year, I uh, sent my mother. I really wanted a close relationship with my mother. I've always wanted that. And I sent her in a men's letter. And she didn't respond. So I sent her another one. And she still didn't respond. It, you know, it wasn't suggested. That was my own self-will. And it's probably a good thing. But later, it wasn't until um, maybe nine or ten years sober, I opened, I invited and opened the door several times so that I can make direct amends to her. And she just wasn't ready. And then at some point, she became ready. And she showed up to one of my job sites, and we sat in my truck. And I was able to make direct amends to my mother. And I saw a tear come down her face. I have never seen any emotion. I want to tell you, today, I mean, see, I became clear that I didn't choose to be an alcoholic, and, and neither did she. And what I know is that my mother is broken to the core. The man she has been with for over 25 years, and, you know, the, the type of relationship she has been in, that she's doing the absolute best she can, and that alcohol is probably saving her. And it doesn't matter that my mother doesn't, isn't capable of picking up the phone and calling and wishing me a happy birthday or Merry Christmas or any of that nature. What matters is that I'm able to pick up the phone and call her. And that's what my life is like today. I want to read one thing out of a vision for you and then I will finish. It may seem incredible that these men are to become happy, respected, and useful once more. How can they rise out of such misery, bad repute, and hopelessness? The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you, should you wish them above all else, and be willing to make use of our experience. We are sure they will come. The age of miracles is still with us. Our own recovery proves that. I'm not the miracle. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is, and I want to thank you for my life.